Good morning, everyone. Let's try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you, although it's really bright up here, so I only see half of you, but it's still good to see you. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series that we've been doing through the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, please open to 1 Peter. That's towards the end of your Bible, later in the New Testament. Now, before we get into this morning's message, we're going to go through our Bible memorization that we've been doing through this series. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name's Joel. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Eaglemont. And uh, one of the things that we've discussed as a staff is trying to do deliberately some memorization. So Pastor Marlowe has chosen this passage that was found in 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to go through it again here just to give a little more practice, all right? So to keep us on script, I'm going to make sure I read it so that I don't throw us off by saying the wrong word. Here we go. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Say it with me. The words will be on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. All right. So as we've done in previous weeks, we're going to do this again. We're going to remove a couple words, see if we're able to still get through here as we're trying to, again, bury God's heart deep within our hearts. Here we go. One more time. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that is rich, that is meant for us, to feed us, to build us, so that we can live the life you've called us to. I pray for each one, would you open our hearts this morning to receive from you. God, I pray that what would be heard is not my words, but God, your words, that you have specially anointed for each one this morning. As your Holy Spirit just speaks to our hearts, may we be open to receive whatever it is you want to say. In Jesus' name, and if you agree, say amen. Amen. All right, so 1 Peter, we're going to be going 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be picking up from where we left off last week. Now, as a very quick review for everyone, uh, just as we go through 1 Peter, here's a little review of what we've been discussing so far in this series. Oops, as my phone just went crazy. All right, here we go. So Peter is writing, again, as a review to exiled Christians, facing immense persecution now, he reiterates that persecution and joy are to be experienced simultaneously in this life because this world is not our real home. Heaven is. Peter then describes the duties of a Christian. In chapters 2 and 3 of, of 1 Peter, uh, we see him lay out the importance of Christian submission, a word that I'm sure in our small groups we have all loved and enjoyed talking about. 
All right, now submitting as a reminder is not something forced or someone who is domineering over the other, but rather the submission is one choosing to come under in obedience to Christ. So we see coming under the authorities like governing authorities of government. We see the submission we do in marriage to each other, uh, slaves and masters relationships. Peter's talking about this idea of submission. Now in the remainder of this third chapter of 1 Peter, Peter moves on to give some relationship advice to Christians. How many of you have ever experienced positive relationship advice, someone who gave you some great advice that helped you out in either a dating, marriage relationship, or a friendship. All right, that's good. How many of you have received horrible relationship advice about your dating, marriage, or friendship relationship? All right, even more hands. All right, I want to state this. This is not random advice. I remember when I was in college, there was a big group of us who lived in dorms together, and every time a guy got a new girlfriend, he would seek the advice of all his other single friends. There's no better way to get good relationship dating advice than from a bunch of single guys. I was one of those single guys who for some reason thought I had a lot of great advice to give. Peter is not some random guy with no knowledge. Peter knows what he's talking about. This is like for those of you who are married, you move to that step, when you really get to that first year, two years in marriage, you suddenly become really hungry to find a mature couple that you can just glean that information off, who have gone before you and you can kind of bounce some things off of, okay? Peter is that experienced, wise mentor in front of us. So here we go. Peter is gonna give us some relationship advice because the gospel is practical, the gospel is not meant to simply be lived out in a lab. It's not meant to be talked about on a Sunday and kind of just played with and discussed with like we're in a classroom. The gospel is actually supposed to be lived out in every day in our real life relationships. So in verse eight, Peter says, finally, or to sum it all up, he gives several imperatives now for how Christians are supposed to get along together, how they are supposed to relate to others. So I want to break down this morning's passage. Uh, this is my interpretation of how to break down the passage. We're going to break it down into kind of four categories. The first is how we relate to other Christians. Secondly, how we relate to our enemies. Third, how we relate to the idea of suffering. And finally, relating to Christ's life as an example for ours. So first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at how do we relate to other Christians. So again, in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, again, please open it up. Read with me here. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. So I want to break down each one of these five points that Peter makes and how we're to relate with each other. And I'm going to do it in the reverse order of which he put, he put them out. So the first one I want to look at is this idea of having a humble attitude, or as the word really means, a lowliness of mind. This idea of humility. Humility needs to be looked at first because it is the base for the other characteristics that Peter spells out here in this verse. Humility is the foundation for courtesy, for thinking of others and not just thinking of ourselves. Humility, to clarify, is not thinking less of yourselves. It's not having a low self-esteem, a low opinion about yourself. Humility is thinking about yourself less. We need to have in our relationships within the church, with one another, we need to come with humility. 
Secondly, we are to be tender-hearted. Again, this Greek word that's uh, translated as tender-hearted means to have uh, compassion, to be compassionate or to show pity. Now, in the Roman Empire, in the culture to which Peter is writing, the idea of compassion or pity was actually not a noble characteristic. It would be very much looked down on culturally. That was a sign of weakness. In our present day of dog-eat-dog, where to fit in, just complain about the boss, be upset, we need to ask God's help to develop in us a tender heart to be able to actually actively show compassion and show others we are concerned for them. I remember as a young man one time, uh, as a teenager, and sitting in a, in a message like you are today, and the preacher who was preaching ta- was talking about uh, evangelism to a group of young people. And there's probably about 140, 150 high school students there. And they're being trained how to share Jesus with other people. So really, you know, excited and energized. And he got a big group of them, probably about 60 or 70. And he put them on the one side. And he had one person who he said was representing Jesus on this side of the stage. And he kind of riled them up. Hey, we got we to gotta chase after Jesus. We got to pursue Jesus, which is what it is to live a life for Christ. We pursue Christ. And so he got these teenagers all riled up. And he said, all right, now go after him. Seek Jesus. Go Go after him with all you got. And so these kids run across this auditorium and are chasing after this guy. And in behind, there is this one person who had broken his leg and he couldn't make it across. And poignantly, he points as all these people run to get who can get to Jesus first. And he points out the heart of Jesus. If you're familiar with the New Testament, Jesus talked about a shepherd who left the 99 sheep he had to find the one who was lost. Because Our shepherd has a heart of compassion. As followers of Jesus, we are to be compassionate to one another, to look for those who are the brokenhearted because that's who has the heart of Christ. We are to act tenderheartedly towards one another. Thirdly, we are to love each other as brothers and sisters. This word is Philadelphus, which also comes from the root word Philadelphia that many of you are maybe familiar with, the Greek word that means brotherly love. This is speaking specifically of the love we have for one another, for other Christians in our lives. Paul, again, is specifically speaking to the church. We love people in the church, in God's church, not in Eaglemont, in Christ's church, differently. As followers of Jesus, we just do. Uh, For those of you who've grown up in church, Maybe you're like me. In the 80s and 90s, when I was growing up, people in the church always called each other brother or sister. You wouldn't say, hi, Monique. You'd say, hello, Sister Monique. How are you doing this morning? Or hi, Brother Marlo. I always found it super weird. (laughs) But it's what we did. But it really, it had some biblical roots in it. You don't need to call me Brother Joel. But but there was some roots in it because we were to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Apostle John said this in in John 13, 35. It is your love for one another that will prove to the world that you are my disciples. There is no action more powerful than how Christians love one another. No good deed, no philanthropy, no great action, no great giving of what we do in the community is actually going to win people to Christ. What will actually transform the world around you is the love of Christ in you and how we love one another, church. Sometimes we cop out because loving one another actually costs a lot more than simply doing a good deed or a good action. We are to love one another. 
One of the most divisive issues in the foodie world, if any of you are foodies, is the topic of Hawaiian pizza. Anybody a foodie? Is, okay, who likes Hawaiian pizza? Just, all right. Who believes Hawaiian pizza is an insult and should not exist? Okay, thank you. We have a couple of foodies. All right, thank you. I've heard people from Italy in particular, this is a big deal. Now, I happen to like Hawaiian pizza, put my cards on the table. But Hawaiian pizza, you got ham, you got pineapple, it's a pizza, great. It's, if, if my wife, who likes to simply eat the toppings off my pizza and leave it, if my wife says, I love Hawaiian pizza, but eats all the pineapple, but doesn't eat anything else, does she actually love Hawaiian pizza? Or does she simply love pineapple? Thank you, exactly. She just loves pineapple. If you say, I love God, I love Jesus, I love how he, in, his, in the Bible, it says those verses that really encourage me. I like when, uh, when Brandy sings and it makes me feel good when I go to church and when people say nice things to me. But I don't really like the church. Those people, you know, there's, she actually, I've seen her outside of church and you should see what she's really like. I don't really actually like the church. I just love Jesus. That's the equivalent of saying you love pizza, but you really only like pineapple. If you love God, he says this really plainly, and Jesus speaks this multiple times, you will love his church because it's his and he loves it. Now, with that caveat, does that mean that within the church that everyone is perfect? Absolutely not. Christ's church is perfect, but what does he do? He invites us, imperfect. He invited me with my sin into his church. And in that, if you notice that there's issues with people, you're absolutely right. And there's probably issues with you too. And Jesus told all of us, come, follow me, welcome. If you love God, you will love his church. Fourthly, we are to sympathize or show compassion this idea of compassion is, it means to suffer or feel like with another letter. Because you're like, we just talked about compassion two points ago. Why are we doing compassion again? Well, actually, if I can, I think in common vernacular, this, this word means to feel like the other or to have a fellow feeling. I would say a better translation would be to have empathy for one another. Galatians 5, uh, 6 verse 2 tells us, We are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're to bear, to carry, to hold one another's burdens. Church, this means that we are supposed to get dirty. The church is not the place we go to on Sundays that we dress up in our Sunday best and we look good and we feel good. The church is not to be a spa, nor it is to be a club. If you want a parallel of what the church is, the church should be a hospital. We are an emergency room. We are a place where the broken come to find healing and wholeness. And in that, as the church, we are called to show empathy, to feel for one another. To not go, well, that's their thing. I'm just going to live my life. No, because when you suffer, I suffer. When you have victory and joy, I have victory and joy. That's how we are to relate one to another. And finally, with that, we are to be of one mind or harmonious. Love, which is what we are to be as followers of Jesus, we are to be love and action. Love is evidenced within the church by a unity of mind. Now, as we've stated here, if you've been around the church for a while, unity does not mean uniformity. 
Unity is cooperation in the midst of diversity. This is a major value at Egomont. If you haven't heard it said before, the reason why it is is because we see it as a great value to God. Unity within his church. Unity is not something that just happens, but is something we have to strive towards. It means putting our personal opinions and selfish desires aside and having what is most important, our joint connection to Christ, be the most important things in our lives. James chapter 4 verse 1 says this, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? What causes disunity in God's church? It's our own selfishness and our own sin. It's our own seeking for our own. Just trying to fill our own cups. Trying to do our own thing. We are called to lay aside our personal preferences. We don't need to talk about the hockey game last night. Some of you don't even want to look me in the eye this morning. We're not going to talk about it because secondary things go second. What matters most is Christ. And that's what unifies us. So it doesn't matter what your political opinions are. I don't care who you voted for. It doesn't, church, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your tastes and preferences are. What matters? Christ. We are one mind because we make the first things, the most important things, the most important things. So the next thing Peter instructs us is how do we relate then to those who are our enemies? Again, the, per- the church that Peter is writing to faced intense persecution from a hostile pagan culture. They were regularly being exposed to psychological, financial, and physical harm, even death. As followers of Jesus, you will have enemies. Sorry if that's news to you, but it's the reality because there are people who are offended by the work of the cross of Jesus. Now, the natural response when we, when we have enemies and we have people who come at us is to retaliate, to fight back. When I was a kid, I didn't know how to take my anger when I was a little child. And so when I would get angry at my siblings, I was famously known for, I know this is going to surprise you because I always assumed I was a saint all the way growing up, but I would slap my siblings. And when I say I would slap them, I mean... I, my siblings would go crying to my mom, and I say I would, of course, say I didn't do it, and then they'd like take their shirt off, and there'd be a giant red handprint on their back. That's a hard one to talk your way out of. That's not the proper way to deal with it, and I had to learn how to deal with my emotions. I had to learn how to deal with my stuff. Church, we need to ha- learn how to deal with the hurt and the pain that we experience in life and the rejection that we feel. Peter says this in verse 9, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Notice here, Peter doesn't give a caveat like, but if they're really bad, or if they're really mean, or what they do is really wrong, there's no caveat. Don't do it. This is really hard. It's really hard when people say things of you that aren't true, that are hurtful, that are painful. It's hard not to retaliate. I know I've been there. We are to keep our tongue from speaking evil things and telling lies. And instead, it says in verse 9 as we continue, instead, this is hard. 
Because some of you this morning, you have someone right now and you don't even want to listen to me because you're so angry because you've been really hurt. It's not trivial. Peter says, instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do and he will grant you his blessing. Pay back with a blessing. This word blessing can be literally translated, it means speak well of them. The person who has lied about you, the person that called you that name, the person that has deceptively begun behind your back and tried to get people to go against you. And Peter says, speak well of them. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time with this one. Peter then goes on in verses 10 to 12. He quotes a passage out of the Psalms, out of the Old Testament, Psalm 34, 12 to 6. And he says this, for the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Your lies and your speech and your reaction, it's not actually about what it will do to the other person. It's about what it's going to do to you. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Within the sandwich of this, we see the promise of what God gives as his blessing. We also see one last instruction from Peter as far as how do we relate to our enemies. And that is this, we are to search for peace and work to maintain it. Our world around us looks for reasons to be offended. War and discord is easy to find. We are not to follow that route. We need the divine work of the Holy Spirit in us to give us a heart of love and benevolence towards our enemies. As it says here, the eyes of the Lord watch over those who do good. I don't know about you, but I tend to get whiny when I get hurt in my life. I tend, God gets a lot of complaint prayers from me sometimes. God, it's not fair. They're getting away with it. You know that they are wrong. You know what they're doing. They're lying and they're getting away with it. And look at they're actually in a better spot than me. It seems like they're getting blessed right now. I need to make this right. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said this, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. We are not called to judge and make justice. That's actually God's job. Because God alone is truly just. It's just like when you're watching a hockey game, the players don't get to go, oh, he totally hit me with his elbow. I'm just taking him off the ice. No, there's someone who actually has the authority to be able to make a penalty call or say it's a good goal. And despite what it looks like, it's not Connor McDavid, although he gets a lot of calls. But there's a referee who gets to make that call. In our lives, your job is not to make things just. This is where we get a lot of confusion. Because some of you right now who have been in church, you're going, but what about Micah 6.8? Micah 6.8 says we are to not make justice, we are to act justly. Love mercy, walk humbly before our God. God alone is capable of making justice because he is the only one who is righteous and truly just. God's justice is measured over the span of eternity, not the experience of the moment, which is what our justice is often measured by. 
we are called to search for and maintain peace. Peace is not passive, but active and hard. So how do we relate then to suffering? Because if we have enemies coming after us and we're told we can't retaliate, how do we actually relate to the suffering in our lives? Well, this is our third point this morning. Verse 13. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So, church, don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Don't worry or be afraid. Worship Christ as Lord. A question that came up in my small group, shout out to the guys in my small group who are brilliant, but one of the questions that came out in the last couple of weeks is, does following Jesus and pursuing peace mean I have to become a passive doormat? Does that mean that I just let people walk all over me? No, it does not. Peter is, not, is, not, is telling us not to ignore justice, but he is telling us not to respond to the world's injustice and persecutions out of our own fears, our own insecurities, and our own selfish desires. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jaden spoke a great message on a passage, and she, she differentiated as it talked about submitting to authorities. And she pointed out that the wording that Peter chose was we were to honor the king or honor the person in authority, okay, honor that authority, but we are to fear God. We don't fear the authority because we are not to fear the things of this world. When I fear threats, when I fear the loss of income, loss of my influence, the loss of my power, I act out of my own insecurity. When I have a fear of God in my life, I see him as Lord. And for those of you who are new to church, fear of God, really, it's not like it's a fear of, is God going to lose it on me? A fear of God is an ultimate reverence of the power and lordship of God. When I fear God and see him as Lord, the ultimate leader and authority of my life, I am not trying to save and protect my own stuff. I don't have a heart just to save and build my own little kingdom for me. I am invested in God's greater purposes being accomplished. We have to look no further than the very people that Peter is writing to, the early church, and their response as they faced intense persecution. They were the ones that reached out to the poor and the abandoned in their world. When the plagues of the first century came through Rome, the Roman Empire didn't know how to deal with it as there was a disease similar, they think it might have been an early version of smallpox that some believe killed as much as a third of the entire Roman Empire. They didn't know what to do with it or how to treat it. And so when you were sick, if you were dead, they threw you out on the street. If you showed symptoms of being sick, you were kicked out of the house, you had nowhere to go. Do you know where people ended up going? To the church because they were the ones that actually reached out. They didn't simply complain about the injustice in their world, they reached the injustice of their world. This world is not my home. There is a bigger picture that you are working for as a follower of Jesus. Making and maintaining peace is hard work. It is challenging. And in order to do it, we need to be anchored in hope. Let's read on in this passage of 1 Peter. 
Reading further in verse 15, and if someone asks you about, asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Hope is joyful and confident expectation of our eternal salvation with Christ. We don't need to be afraid because we have the antidote to death and the key to life. And to share with the world around us this hope, it's not by going to the street corner and saying, turn or burn and having a sign and yelling at people. It's sharing the reason for our hope. It's sharing the gospel, which is good news. Finally, verse 17 here, it says that we are to remember it is better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. It's when we are doing what God wants that suffering can actually be better because it is in our suffering that can we, we can, to an even greater experience and extent, know and experience Christ. A life for Jesus is not a life of gumdrops and lollipops where everything you want is yours. Living for Christ is a life of sacrifice. It's about following him. Jesus is not just found in your victories and your good moments when you think you've got it together. He is close to the brokenhearted. And when we suffer for him, some of you are going through really hard stuff. When we seek him, if you're, if you're hurting this morning, I just want to say this, please start reading through the Psalms because in David's words, you're going to find a, a fellow sojourner who has gone through pain and suffering and he does not give quipes. He does not give cliched churchy answers. God is not afraid of your pain and he's not just waiting on the other side of your pain to meet you. He wants to meet you in your pain. Finally, this morning, the last thing that Peter talks to us is how we relate to Christ as our example. In verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. God suffered. That's why we know we can find him in our suffering, because he is in it too. God suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. There's this passage in verse 19 and 20, and it talks about Noah or, or, or Jesus and how he preached back to the people who were in the days of Noah. This passage contains one of the most difficult and contested exegetical problems in the New Testament. Uh, we aren't going to get caught up in which way to interpret this as it's actually not really the main point of this passage. Peter is stating here, uh, really making the point that Jesus died once for all for sins. Christ suffered once for all time. How is that possible? Because God himself was outside of time. So even though Jesus died 
Over 2,000 years ago, he already saw you and he saw every sin that you will ever commit in your life. He paid for it all. He never sinned, but was perfect and died, as it says, to safely bring you home. The theological term is Jesus became the substitutionary atonement for you. That there was a cost for sin in the Old Testament that sacrifices were required to pay for sin. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came to earth and died on the cross, mankind had to make sacrifices. They would have to kill an animal and shed blood to pay for their sin. Over and over again, each time, okay, I did something wrong, I got to pay for it. Each time I sinned, I got to pay for it. Because there was a requirement. Sin requires death. There is a penalty for it. Jesus, by his blood, the reason why he came to die on the cross was for you and for me so that your sin once for all was paid for. There was no other sacrifices needed to be made. There was no other penance needed to be made in your life. It was a once for all substitute to pay for that cost. And he did it so that he could bring you safely home. This term literally means that you gain an audience at the court. That you are welcomed into the very courts of God. Once again, able to be united with him and to know him. His physical death led to a spiritual life. And his physical death leads to an opportunity for us to have spiritual life with him. Verse 21, that water is a picture of baptism. Speaking about Noah. The water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus. In the days of Noah, if church is new to you and you haven't heard this story, there's the story of Noah. Noah builds an ark and God has to flood the earth because the earth had become inherently sinful and God needed to renew it. Like the waters cleansed the earth, so too baptism is symbolic of God's cleansing in our lives. Baptism itself does not save you, but baptism is something we do subsequent to receiving Jesus and experiencing salvation, renewed life in Christ. It is a public confession of a private faith. And the water going down is a washing of our old self and the sin that we once had so that we come up in the renewed life that Christ has now given us. In two weeks from now, we're going to be having a baptism service here. And if you have not yet taken that step, if you know Jesus personally, I want to encourage you to take that step of, of your relationship with Jesus because it's what he asks you to do. Some of you I know have held off because you go, well, I still don't have all my life right. I'm, I'm going to wait till I get all this stuff lined up and I feel like my life's perfect and it's kind of really in line with what Jesus would want. You're never going to get there. Not in this lifetime. Here's the reality, the pattern that I see in the New Testament. People came by the power of the Holy Spirit, received Jesus who came in them, forgave them of sins, have eternal life, and immediately they chose then to be baptized. And you have that opportunity. It's just a statement of faith in following him. And if you haven't yet, you can go to the website, go to eaglemont.info, click on the baptism tag there, talk to Pastor Marlowe, talk to myself, one of the other pastors or one of the other church leaders. We would be so excited to celebrate with you. There's gonna be a baptism class next week, uh, just before the morning service. And then two weeks from now, you'd have the opportunity to take that step. 
Finally, in verse 22, now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God and all of the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. Jesus is our ultimate example. Christ did not fight back when he was more than justified to, when he was treated poorly, when he was humiliated, when he was lied against, when he was persecuted, when he was beaten. Jesus did not retaliate and he did not throw insults. Now he is in heaven next to God the Father with all authority. Church, this is what we're invited to. This is what our lives are to be about. It's about knowing him closely and walking with him in all aspects and all relationships of our lives with one another and how we treat each other and the wholeness of what it means to be a part of Christ-like community and how we respond to the enemies that we face in our world and the suffering that we experience and finding him, our example, in each one of those because he is intimately found in there. I'm going to ask church if you'll stand with me as we close. And as we've done in previous weeks, I want to give an opportunity this morning. I want to pray for each of you. But the first thing I want to do is I want to give an opportunity because this morning you may have never taken that step yourself. As we spoke about Jesus, as Peter clearly lays out here, Jesus paid the penalty for the cost of sin. Sin that keeps us from being in right relationship with God and actually knowing him. It's that caveat, that hole within us that we know that there is more than simply this world and we're called to be connected to more than just ourselves. That God is calling you and wants you to be connected to him. I'm going to ask if, if you would join me. We're going to pray. And oftentimes when we pray, we just close our eyes. That's just a way of focusing. I'm going to ask if you do that this morning. And if you're here this morning and you've never invited Christ in, the Bible tells us it's a matter of making a confession with our lips and believing in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. And so if you believe that, if you're stirring in that and you want to take that step, you want to personally know Jesus, you want to know God, you want to have him in your life, then it's, as, it's really as simple as starting with this but I want, to, I want to say this first. It's not as simple as saying a prayer and you're done. The prayer is the start. And Jesus does all the work right away, but it is a lifetime of actually following him. It's a lifetime of actually obeying him. It's a lifetime of actually pursuing him. But it starts with a confession and an ask. And so if that's you, you can say a prayer like this with me. We're going to pray to God the Father. For his son, Jesus, who came for us. So you can say something like this. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love me. I know I have not lived a perfect life. I have made mistakes. I've sinned against you. and tried to do my own thing. Please forgive me. Heal me. Come live in me. I want you to take the lead of my life. I want to know you every day and live for you. Thank you for loving me. 
Jesus' name. God, for each of us this morning, I pray, for those of us who have made this decision long ago and those of us who maybe this morning was that time. God, I, I just ask today, Lord, would you help each of us to love each other well? Help us where we've been hypocritical in our lives and how we've treated each other. Please forgive us for where we've gossiped, where we've spoken negatively, where we've looked negatively at each other. Thank you for your church. Help us to love it more like you do. Help us to show compassion, to not live selfishly, but selflessly. To invest into the church that you call holy and that you love and treat it like our family because it's yours. Help us to learn how to respond to our enemies. And that's hard for us, God. Forgive us where we know we've responded poorly, where we've returned insult for insult and we've retaliated. Help us to develop a character that's more like yours. Help us to know how to speak well when people don't speak well of us. Help us when we hurt and when we suffer to not feel alone even when there is no one on this earth that's in it with us. Help us to find Jesus in our suffering not just to look for you outside of it. Help sustain us through it. Help us know you more, Jesus. Help our lives actually show you. Help us to experience you. May we not just theoretically know about Jesus. God, may we experience you in all of our relationships. Most importantly, may we just know you more and more and more every day. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.